Hello and welcome. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, and this is A New Spin on Autism, Answers. I say that because in this show, we boldly go where no woman or host or man or animal or beast has gone before. We actually make up answers for autism. I know, I know, it's a crazy idea, but, um, but you know, we come up with some really good stuff and we share it and we find other therapists that have good ideas and then you tell me what you took home and what worked for you and we bring that up later. So here we are. We've got some answers and coming up we're going to have a great discussion. Last last episode I enjoyed so much having two guests that I decided to try that one more time. So we're going to have a little free-for-all of conversation. I'll bring them in one at a time to keep it somewhat calm. And we're going to focus today on my favorite subject, neurofeedback and autism. I try my very best not to constantly talk about neurofeedback, in all fairness to the rest of the therapies in the world, but it is my absolute favorite, and I will tell you why at the very end of the show. Uh, before we get started, I want to remind you that you want to stay to the very end of, this, of the show because we have stories from the road to wrap it all up with. Normally we also have the okay, 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 great guest giveaway, but I suspect we're going to be chatting our little heads off here today, so I'm going to forego that one, and we're just going to get started talking about neurofeedback. We'll start by me telling you that I first came to discover neurofeedback, which, by the way, is biofeedback for the brain. Go ahead and Google that. We'll sort of describe it a little bit, but... Um, I want to really want to get into its benefits much more than I want to get into the description of neurofeedback itself. I'll put a little something on the website for you. So I, I first discovered it because I was training in yet another modality at this point in my uh, parenting history and professional history. I was training in play therapy, the sunrise style of play therapy for autism. And I had reached the end of my training period and was looking for something else because my son was still not talking. So he was 23 years old. He was not talking, at least nothing that anybody other than I could understand. And the only reason I could understand it is that I was decoding based on what I knew about him. And I had other kids, of course. You know, anyone who's been listening knows that I have adopted four children on the spectrum, and at this point, two are already doing fairly well and are out of the house. Though they're struggling emotionally, they're doing pretty good. Um, one's got Tourette's, and he's punching holes in the walls, but I can live with that. We at least have conversation. But I have a 23-year-old who's not talking, and I'm looking for solutions. I'm reading in a magazine about autism, and I start to read about neurofeedback. Why I was attracted to it is because I had loved the training I had just done where we responded with rewarding and exciting reactions to every positive behavior. By positive, I mean behavior we wanted to see grow, like more eye contact or more attempts at communication or whatever we were after. And I liked this change in me as a mom. Instead of feeling like 
somebody who was always yelling at my kids or making them do stuff. I got to encourage them and cheerlead them, and it was a great change for me, and it made me feel like a nicer human being, and I loved my children more. So I wanted to hold on to that, but I wanted something more powerful. I read about neurofeedback, and lo and behold, it rewards positive change or change that goes in the direction you want it to go in, but in the brain itself at a neuronal level. That, to me, was a perfect match for the way I was evolving and working with my kids. So I followed up, and I started training in it. I went to a clinic. I got somebody to to show me how to do it so I could do it at home. I decided to become a professional. And this is where our first guest comes in. So I take my first professional uh, course. It's a four-day that sort of give you an overview of the whole thing. And one of the teachers at the time, his name is Mike Cohen, Michael Cohen. He is at present the director of training and president of the Center for Brain Training out of Florida. He specialized in applied psychophysiology and EEG biofeedback since 1996. So that's, that's his, I'm reading, you can tell, right? Okay, but, but the coolest thing for me in the very first class, this is my memory of Mike before I introduce him, he was the one that you would pay attention to as a teacher because he was, I'm sorry, Mike, I'm going to tell them you're balding. So he was balding <laughs> and had, you know, the tufts of hair on either side of the head. And Mike plops this sensor on his head, so he looks extremely silly. Now he's got one on each ear, and he's walking around talking. And something about the warmth and the ease and the fun in that delivery lit my brain up enough for me to understand and learn this modality at breakneck speed. So I've always had a soft spot in my heart for Michael since that that moment. And a second moment, which I'll quickly tell you about, and then he's coming in, is that I was doing a training, a different kind of training than the one I normally do that is for calming. My brain is actually already or was at that time, so calm that if you added more calming, I was basically going to pass out. Now, I've known that with medicine. I can't take a tranquilizer or anything like that. I would you know, be gone for four days. But I didn't know that. Well, let, let's clarify that for one. It's not just for calming. It, it actually slows okay, your okay. brain down. Right. It's slow. I know. I'm trying to help. But okay, but you're uh, right. It slows your brain down, and I, my brain is already, at that point in time, was already so slow that if I added to that, I was going to be extremely uncomfortable. So I did this test therapy, a very short one, and I start, I'm standing against the wall, and I'm starting to sort of fall, and Mike catches me, and, and I, I have this memory of everything being off in the distance. I feel like I'm in the ER, stat, helper, stat, right? And everybody's trying to help me, and you're going, that's not going to work, clear the way. And you plop the sensor on me, before I know it, I'm, I'm up, and I'm clear-headed, and everyone says, next time you got to you got to do the, the work before you do this particular therapy. So that's your introduction, Mike. You've saved me. You've entertained me. You've taught me. Um, I would now you, like you were a bit You were a bit entertaining at the time, even though it was difficult. <laughs> <laughs> so I've started us right off the bat with a hotbed of information. So why don't you explain how it is possible? See, that's why I left it with calming initially. You explain, please, for people how it is possible that a therapy that doesn't truly have any strong side effects to worry about 
could have left me in a state like that? Well, one of the challenges that we have in trying to understand neurofeedback is what the heck does it do? And I often try to tell people neurofeedback actually doesn't do anything to your brain any more than, you know, if you go into a gym and you start working out with weights, it's not that the weights do something to you. It's you doing something with the weights that create the issue. So what neurofeedback does is it creates, a, it measures your activity and it creates a pattern. Your brain follows that pattern. It's kind of a very natural response for our brain. You follow, there's music in the background you really like, your foot starts tapping along. Your brain literally starts tapping along. And so whatever uh, pattern that we uh, want to target uh, to reinforce more of a certain pattern, we can do. And so part of the challenge of training, just like part of the challenge of exercising is, well, which of these exercises are going to be the best exercises to help me be in the best shape? Neurofeedback is exercising your brain. It's the brain circuit. We, you know, if I have a brain circuit area that has to, you know, watch other people and gaze, which is actually the right, uh, you know, we won't get into what area that part of that brain is, mm-hmm. but when we do that, um, what we need is um, to be able to target these different areas and to help people learn to make that work. Well, which of these patterns are the best pattern for each individual is different. So in your case, we didn't really know at the time, you know, for many, many people, particularly people who are really, uh, who appear to be highly wired like you did, it would seem like slowing you down makes complete sense. And at that point, you know, there's many different ways to look at this activity, but, um, you know, in advance. But it, it, these are complex things to, to understand. And so, you, you know, like you go in the gym, you start working out. We wanted to try, and you wanted to try this exercise that would quiet you and slow you down because you're such a wound up person. But at the same time, gee, when you reinforce that pattern of getting your brain to make more slow activity, now we find out how your brain really does with that exercise. And as we found out, your brain already had some of that slow activity. Um, And making more of it was not, at that moment, an optimum exercise. So what happened? Well said. So I, I don't know if that was way too much. but um, No, no, that was really well said. The truth is that it's an interesting dichotomy. The whole concept of seeing somebody who seems to have a lot of energy and assuming that means that they're operating on higher frequencies in the brain and then discovering it's because they're compensating for lower is the whole ADHD kind of presentation that sort of has gotten figured out over the last little bit, which is why people give a stimulant to calm down an ADHD person. So it's a similar kind of scenario, right? Absolutely. And, and just as a, a bit of a side note, but a scary one, uh, a couple of years ago, they did brain maps of spectrum kids and kids with significant developmental problems. And they looked and they saw that lots of these kids, in fact, had too much slower activity which is why their brain isn't performing as well. If, if the part of your brain that has to pay attention is running too slow, 
it doesn't pay attention as well. If the part of your brain that helps you be calm is not running, is running too slow, it won't do a good job of helping you calm your emotions. There you go. And here's here's something I haven't told you before, Mike, because it's pretty new information for me. But I actually ended up diagnosed with Asperger's. So you saying that about some of the Spectrum kids um, having, you know, the excess of low wave or slow wave, and I had a similar situation. And then I had discovered when I was working with so many of the Spectrum kids that sometimes people were thinking they needed to be calmed, and they ended up with less um, less abilities, less skills from excessively trying to reduce the higher wave activity. So it's very interesting that all this is coming out now and getting understood. And, and we're talking these technical terms, but it really comes down to what, which parts of your brain need to be performing better and what's the best exercise. And you can learn that. You can adapt that. And you have a good, someone with really good skills like you do, you quickly tune in to, you know, because of all your experience, wow, you know, this problem really relates to, I mean, you have an intuitive feel for that. So it's, it's quite impressive. But I was going to comment that at this same conference that they talked about all these kids in the spectrum that has this excessive slow activity, they did a study of Abilify, which is one of the newer drugs that have been approved for kids with a lot of emotional problems or emotional outbursts or anger outbursts, they get put them on Abilify because that's now okay for spectrum kids. And guess what the brain maps did? Because nobody looked at brain mapping for that in the, in the drug company. And the answer was it made more slow activity. Interesting. Interesting. That's very interesting. So here you have kids with developmental problems. Excessive slow activity in their brain contributes to the developmental problems. What do we give them to calm down? (laughs) More slow. (laughs) More slow. Now, that might actually reduce their outburst. Obviously, that's the reason they're being given. But it's taking them in the wrong direction developmentally. Right. Every single person in the room gasped. Yeah, it was no, like, I, I oh get it. I gosh. get it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And and you're right. It, it might calm them, and that can trick people, but they're not going to get greater skill development if their brain is struggling so hard to be able to mm-hmm. focus and be balanced. So we're we're actually compounding the problem by doing something like that. I got to move us into bringing in Cheryl now. Okay, so. Cheryl, the reason Cheryl's going to speak with us, her name's Cheryl Checkers, and what happened was I got, um, I did, Mike does, uh, makes little podcasts, little, makes you, my podcast is big, his little, no, <laughs> Mike does podcasts, and he, inter- he uh, interviewed me, and there are four uh, inside of the neurofeedback community as a general rule, so we did an interview, Cheryl heard it, um, and she reached out because she is very versed in autism and is very curious about and learning about and beginning to apply neurofeedback. And so she's made the connection with uh, Mike and now reached out to myself. And I thought, how exciting for us to have a three-way conversation where we're all coming at this a little bit different. Uh, Mike does work with autism. Correct me if I say anything that's not, not valid or, or accurate. 
but he does work with autism, but I see Mike as the person who's more the expert in the neurofeedback itself. I see myself somewhat as an expert in the blending of the neurofeedback and the autism and being intuitive with how to put all these things together in the home dynamically. And then Cheryl... Um, has a has an awful lot of background in working with autism itself. So I'm going to read a little bit here just to – she's new to me, so I'm going to read a little bit of what she's given me. Cheryl's the mother of an adult daughter with autism. She's a, clinic, a clinician with a master's degree in mental health counseling, and she has a diverse background working with individuals with ASD and their families. Her experience includes working as a clinical support specialist and clinical program coordinator – for FAU, which is Florida. F-A-U. Yes, it's, it's the Florida University Center for Autism and Related Disabilities as a clinician in private practice specializing in ASD, and on and on and on. It's all about ASD. Well, so welcome so much, and, and add anything I, I missed. I want to thank both of you, Lynette and Michael, for allowing me to be part of this discussion I'm really looking forward to learning more about the use of neurofeedback in the treatment of autism. I've been meeting with Michael, and he's um, been a wonderful teacher, and what I have learned thus far has been very exciting. Um, I, I am all on a tireless pursuit of, of resources to bring to families I work with, so I am always open to new and, and different, and I know this isn't neurofeedback's not new in the treatment of autism, but new to me. And I'm just so anxious to learn more about it. it um, I, I have had a lot of experience um, working with um, teens in particular that have been on the Abilify that um, Michael had mentioned, and um, there's just a variety of different meds. And it, to me, in my experience, I see an exacerbation of symptoms, particularly in puberty, for a lot of the higher-functioning um, Asperger's um, population, and I just feel like there's got to be more than just putting, you know, adding more meds in, and that's really how I um, kind of stumbled on <laughs> neurofeedback and Michael, and then, you know, and and found you through Lynette, through Michael. So so I'm just thrilled to be here. And, We're thrilled um, to Cheryl, have you. <laughs> can, can, can I ask Cheryl a question? Yeah. Um, all right. I, I mean, or kind of frame something. Uh, the first time we met, you you came, you're, you're in the same community that I am, so you came to a talk that I did. And then, you know, because you had all this experience in, in our county with, so many people in the autistic community, you know, we sat, we went and had breakfast one day, and as I was talking about some of what neurofeedback does and some of the cases of, you know, here's an autistic kid that was, you know, basically melting down at the bus who was, he was getting picked up at, you know, every morning, and in the space of about four or five neurofeedback sessions, that many months behavior stopped completely and then I talked about several other cases and you were like something to the effect how come I've been in this field for so long and can you fill that in not heard of it <laughs> yeah this is a good frame thank you Mike 
Uh, absolutely. Um, and I did. I said, is this the missing piece of the puzzle that, that I've been looking for? Because I've always felt that there's that there's something missing. And, you know, I, I did have that talk with Michael, and I was so completely impressed that I kept coming back to learn more. And I just, I mean, the, the case studies that Michael's told me about and that I've read also, Lynette, um, on your websites are just incredible. So right. it's it just, is this the missing piece of the puzzle? But Cheryl, and this, why? Is the, this, this is the one question I have to ask. You work, for one of the, you work for one of the major centers in South Florida for providing resources to parents, correct? I do. No one you didn't know about it. <laughs> no one there knew anything about it at all? I, I never heard the word uh, neurofeedback and autism in my time um, with, with FAU CARD. I um, did work full-time staff and, and as consultant, and now I'm, um, again, going to be consulting with them. But no, I, I did not. I was a clinical coordinator that did um, plan speakers and talks and presentations and trainings for families and professionals in the community. And I, I don't know why I've never heard it. So okay, I, hold on that thought. I'm going to do a little uh, reminder to everybody. You are listening to A New Spin on Autism Answers. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host. And we are going to have the most amazing, and already having the most amazing day. We're having a big discussion on neurofeedback and how it affects autism and why nobody's heard of it. Okay, <laughs> that's kind of where we left off. So you hadn't heard of it. So what were the therapies that you were using, and what are the therapies you, you use today? Cheryl. Well, I, I am not pure to any one form of therapy. I meet the client where they are. Uh, I do a lot of parent training and education. I, um, I do utilize a lot of behavior therapy, um, cognitive behavior therapy, um, social skills, um, interventions, just whatever, whatever I need to reach, reach the client and the family. Yeah. Okay, I so now that you have heard of neurofeedback and you've been mm -hmm. seeking it out and gaining information from Mike, tell me, did you find that once you had heard about it and started talking about it to others, they said, oh, yeah, I've heard of that? No, not, that wasn't always the, that's not been the case, actually. Um, a few, I, I did reach out to a few professionals that I work very closely with. Uh, they did hear of it. They said that it is, um, that has a lot of research base in the treatment of ADHD, but they hadn't heard a lot of about its use in autism, although um, the ADHD being inherent in autism, it would make sense that that would help somebody with autism as well. Exactly. Um, I, so, Mike, over to you. What do you think about the fact that they are happy to hand out medicine for comorbid situations and, you know, say the piece, the OCD piece inside of autism or the focus piece or whatever? Um, while at the same time the word's not getting out very big on neurofeedback. What are your feelings here? What are your thoughts? It's been a very sobering um, uh, inter uh, interaction with Cheryl because 
she, I mean, she even told me of specific people, you know, in the community who are really, really considered the experts who just don't really talk about it. And so, you know, it's not unusual, not just within the autism community, but in others, as, in neurofeedback as a field. This is pretty specialized stuff. And the unfortunate, you know, this is my point of view. If you go to experts in any area, you know, whether that's in autism, whether that's in ADD, whether that's in computers, it doesn't really matter, very top experts, and you go, I'm going to ask you about something you know very little about. Could you tell me your opinion? Their choice is to say, hmm, I really don't know much about this, but that's something that would be interesting to learn more about. Or they could say, hmm, since I don't know much about this and I'm an expert, I don't really think there's any real basis to it. Oh, Unfortunately, perfect. too many experts actually choose that option. And there are, on occasion, there's a wonderful MD up in New Jersey that has uh, been working with autistic children for a long time, but he's out of the box himself. I mean, he uses some um, biomedical type of interventions with kids. Well, he's embracing our feedback intensely because he's focused on what else are you going to do, just like Cheryl was asking. But the number of doctors and even professionals within the community, at least this is my perception, and Cheryl and I have talked a little bit about it, is, you know, it's they're expert in what they know. Why should they be an expert in what we know? And so we have to do a better job. You know, we're not, I'm not an autism expert. So one of the reasons I'm actually cultivating Cheryl is we need to cultivate more experts in autism who are open to sharing with their True, but I mean, it is kind of ridiculous that the autism experts, like you can actually get a degree in autism now, which for me is hilarious. It's like getting a degree in schizophrenia. It's so silly. So you can get a degree in autism and be an autism expert, and that doesn't guarantee that you're going to know about all of the therapies that are beneficial. It's hilarious. So there, it's not just that we need to do a better job, but I think as a society, we need to be more willing to say exactly what you just pointed out. Oh, I don't know about that particular thing. Let's find out. Goodness gracious, Google it. You know, I mean, we live in a, in a world now where it's quite easy to find out about things. So it's really kind of becoming unforgivable to not at least say, let's find out. And I, I would like to put the, a call to action to people to, to take that attitude at the very least. Thoughts? I'm, I'm going to ask that of Cheryl because Cheryl <laughs> really did do the, the, I mean, here's a case in which you were curious. And can, can I say it in kind of fairly direct terms? You went out and talked to a bunch of people and were completely shot down. Yeah, tell us about that. Okay. <laughs> well, I preface that with saying that I, I am still very green um, and learning about neurofeedback myself, um, but I am always open to learning about what might help um, people, individuals with autism. And I, that, I am always on a quest. I'm always going to trainings. I'm always going, reaching out, looking for what I might be missing. So I, I kind of have that attitude. Uh, uh, I say that I am a, um, a learner 
um, of autism, a student of autism for, for the past 20 years, and I'll continue to be. Um, I, I do think that there's not enough research on, on the use of neurofeedback in autism, and I think that if there was more research done, that it, it would maybe be easier for more to embrace it. Because it, as you know, behavior therapy being the best practice, the evidence-based um, therapy, that's typically where uh, clinicians lean mm -hmm. towards what, what's the best practice, what is Autism Speaks, you know, purport are the center for the autism, and I'm, excuse me, I can't think of the name of it, that does the, the research on the different, uh, 11 different types of practices that are uh, evidence-based and they bring, you know, they do a report each year. Uh, it's an autism center. Uh, they, I believe that the clinicians in the field really rely heavily upon um, the evidence-based um, research-based. I, I think this is a good point because the fact is that in this in this regard, I think as a field we might be a little bit to blame for sure because traditionally, you know, autistic people can be very difficult to work with, especially in the clinic setting, especially when you're working with uh, sensors and gels and that sort of thing. And so when a clinician is setting up and they're going, what clientele do I want to specialize in? Uh, what kind, you know, or also when they're doing studies or researching, it's harder to work with the autism community, especially in the past when it was not so broad a spectrum. So you're really looking at kids with major behaviors. And I think many, many people just chose not to go with working with the more difficult scenario and chose to go with the simpler, clearer cut scenario. So you end up with a lot of information on seizures, information on anxiety, information on ADHD. But autism's grown so big as of late that there are good studies happening and have happened, and at least it's gaining ground in this regard, and we're playing catch-up. So I, do, I think your point's valid. Um, we need to do that. Uh, unfortunately, though, research doesn't always, and this, I mean, we could go here forever, but research doesn't always take you to the answers. It just takes you to the things that we can prove um, in a model, in a study model that's accepted, and, and that's a whole other show. <laughs> well, well let, me make, let me make a couple of comments. Uh, one, there are a couple of research things that have been done in autism with neurofeedback that are so compelling in terms of yeah. what they share as uh, evidence that even if academics and people who are in medicine want to sniff at it and say, well, this isn't a perfect study, the, the data itself is actually fairly good and uh, there's actually a University of California San Diego study that's very interesting as well as uh, uh, one by Dr. Ron Coben. Mm -hmm. Those are dismissed also and those are at least sufficient to encourage people to do research and that's one of the problems is that the institutions who have to do the research are not engaging in looking at something new and they're the ones that are complaining there's not enough research, the ones who have to do it. So it's yeah, not just no, people yeah. in our field. It's difficult. 
Yes, I agree. It's very challenging, and we are working in, in a world that, you know, getting people to wash their hands took two generations of proof. I mean, people just don't jump on new bandwagons. That especially, the truth is, with neurofeedback, the change is much more dramatic than anything else I've ever stumbled across. So that can be, in and of itself, a turnoff for people that are used to working slow and methodically and very finding things very difficult. Um, I would love you to address that idea. Either one of you. Well, that's a tough question. Cheryl, um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, you are much, I mean, I'm not, we're not putting you on the spot, but you have a good feel for the establishment, if you want to put it that way. I'm not blame, I don't want to blame anybody for not investigating neurofeedback and, and you know, focus so much on what are the issues of why people are not adopting it. I mean, I think the question is, given where things are, what's the best way for people to start embracing it more? Well, and remember, my audience is mostly parents, and they want to know why themselves. They want to, they're trying to make sense of this. They're looking at all of this stuff on the web, and they're going, if this is a real, you know, valid therapy, why don't I know more about it? Because they have to have some measure, some way to choose amongst this enormous, over 500 now, therapies that are targeting autism. So, you know, it's a valid thing for us to sit and discuss and try to figure out and at the very least get the parents who are listening a way of considering, you know, there used to be a saying, consider the author. And that's kind of what I want to raise up here is at the very least, get, let's give them some tools or some ways to think so that they can say why something that could be very valid isn't being shared with them, whereas something that maybe, you know, a drug that's not helping at all and is exacerbating system, symptoms is being handed to them. So let's just go ahead and play with it. We've got another five minutes before I ask you for your tip of the day. <laughs> that, that is a, a very difficult question. I don't think there's one way to bring it to the community. I think you are doing a wonderful job and Michael's doing a wonderful job of being a, a big presence on the web and including case studies and videos and, and you know, solid evidence that this is something that's worked for both of you that it could work for, for parents and, you know, for, for their children as well. Um, I, I don't know that this is something that will just, you know, go out there and, and be, you know, nationwide kind of thing. It, it, it seems like it might be a slower process because, just because of where the spotlight is right now on behavior therapy and the success that that clinicians are getting um, with behavior therapy. I'm not a behavior therapist, um, I, but I do believe that behavior therapy works. Um, but I also don't believe it's just one piece. I, I believe it's it's really the whole puzzle and that every... Every child um, or adult that ha that's on the spectrum uh, is going to be helped in a different way. There's not one answer. And in my, you know, my, I'm very encouraged to learn more about neurofeedback. And I'm, I feel like I, you know, getting more experience and, and learning more about it, then I could play a part in bringing it to the community. Um, because this is very new to me, I am still learning, and 
once I believe in something, then I have no problem screaming it from the hilltops. But I'm just not there yet. But I, I can say that I'm very intrigued. Everything I've seen has been very positive, and I'm going to keep plugging away and learning more and doing my research and meeting with Michael and until I can feel fully convinced and, and I can, you know, possibly play a part in doing some research locally here in Florida. Wow, that's already being a superior professional. We're most impressed. Um, and, Michael, is there anything? So we're getting close to the end here. It's mm -hmm. been really fun. I knew we'd only just stir stuff up. Um, but I do like to give everyone a chance to sort of talk about where they're from, you know, your websites, share how people can get a hold of you, and then please just give us your one most special word of advice. Um, my website is centerforbrain.com, and there's some good introductory information there about neurofeedback and autism and how they work together, uh, along with a few good case studies. Um, I think that, um, you know, I understand in all areas that, um, you know, the people who come to us are the ones who go, who say, this makes sense to me, I'm going to try. And, you know, if you're someone who can make your own judgments about what makes sense, I mean, we have not had a single a child in the autistic spectrum who didn't make significant progress. Ditto. Uh, Lynette, when you have talked to me, you have said the exact same thing. Yeah. Why is that? It's because there's nothing magic about neurofeedback. You're, you're training the brain's behavior. I mean, you know, I, I laugh when people go, we're into behavioral therapy. Neurofeedback is the most direct yeah. behavioral therapy that exists. It just happens that we're training the brain's behavior, and that's where the problem starts. And so when you, if you look at that fundamental question, once people dig into this themselves, I actually find it far simpler to explain this to parents than I do to professionals. Why is that? We could probably talk about that a long time. But, <laughs> so I'm no longer focused on the professional. I'm focused on the parent. And the parents, if they listen carefully, they, they will make their own judgments. And the ones who, you know, anyway, that, that's all I can really say. It's, this isn't magic. This is about how in the world, what is your choice about actually getting the brain to function better? This is really all based on neuroplasticity. More feedback is all about neuroplasticity, and it does literally provide the best tool for helping the brain change itself. Beautiful. Well said. And I'd just like to add that I think possibly the reason it's easier to speak to the parents is because they don't have training that they have to push out of the way so they can hear you. Sometimes that can be a problem. Um, and, of course, I get, it's my show, so I get the last word on that. Okay, Cheryl. <laughs> Same thing. Tell, tell us where you're working now. Uh, close with a little bit of information in case anyone wants to get a hold of you. And, uh, and then just a little piece of advice or, or something you just want to share. Uh, well, I wanted to thank you again for allowing me to be oh. a part of this discussion, um, particularly because I, um, I want to bring this 
to the to my autism world, <laughs> and um, this is great for me to learn more. And I I don't have a website to give you, um, but I can say as as a parent to other parents that um, what Michael's saying is is right. Parents will know if this is right for their child. We just as parents um, intuit what our child needs. That's, you know why you don't have a website because you're establishment. <laughs> so um, on that note, your daughter, have you tried it with your daughter and will you? Um, I have not, and I have talked to her about it. She's an adult, so I'm going to allow her to make that decision, but it's certainly a possibility. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for being here. I really appreciate it. I am now going to do stories from the road. Okay, everybody. You know how I usually give you a story from the road, you know, from one of my jobs in Germany or Italy or India or whatever. But every once in a while, the right story is from my home. I began this show today talking to you about how I found neurofeedback and the state my home was in. You know, I had two sons who'd managed to get out of the house but were still emotionally challenged, but doing fine, you know, really managing to struggle, sort of like the regular struggling Joe. Um, So they'd done well without neurofeedback. One still had night terrors, and the other was still really a slow, slow learner. But they were on their own. And I had a son who had Tourette's and was punching holes in walls and saying F you periodically for absolutely no reason. It was very embarrassing, difficult, and hard for him. He had tics and, um, and was also autistic, so very, you know, challenged. And, by the way, he was retarded um, in the clinical sense of the word, not in the derogatory sense of the word. So they had fetal alcohol syndrome, all kinds of uh, multiply diagnosed my kids. They all had major, major problems, things that you're not supposed to be able to get over. So I find neurofeedback, and as much as I'm driven to help all my kids all the time, um, and remember, by the way, I didn't cause the fetal alcohol syndrome. That was They were adopted. I used to forget to tell people that. It got me in lots of trouble. So um, anyways, I, I always want to help all my kids, but the one that I just always felt for was Dar because he couldn't talk. He's 23 years old, and he's the one I always put to the back of the line because I knew he'd still be there. He was so challenged and so disabled. Even his, you know, part of his occipital lobe, which is the part you see with, and process vision was missing. So he's a challenged kid. So I know he's not going to you know, go out and join a gang or anything. He's going to be in my house. I can always find him. So I keep putting him to the back, putting him to the back of the list, focusing on the other kids. He's 23, he can't talk, I'm still looking for a way to help him. Now I've tried a lot of things, but in all honesty, I've got a lot of guilt still, because I feel like I haven't done enough for him. I find neurofeedback, and I've been running, by, I've been working nine hours a day with him while simultaneously training. So I'm really making a mad rush to, to try to catch up and get rid of my own guilt and really help him. But he's old. Everyone's telling me, forget it, he'll never talk. I hear about neurofeedback. I decide I'm going to try it. I cry every time I tell this story, by the way. I tell it on stage often during my show. So I'll try not to cry because this is an audio audio tape and you won't be able to understand me. 
But I, I take him to this wonderful woman who is a very important in the field of neurofeedback, and I luck out to, to have one of the greater tech, uh, clinicians. And she's a bit afraid of my intimidating man-child who's punching himself in the face while he's sitting down to get the sensors put on and going, <clears throat> but she handles it, and he does it, and I say, Dar, stop, and we get him through the first session. And I, I don't see too much, but... That's okay, it's only the first session. And then session lasts a half an hour, um, but there's, it's about an hour in the office. So we come back. I decide I'm going to commit to 40 sessions, and we're going to see what happens. I take a month off of work and of training, and I'm doing this with my son. So we do the first session, not much. The second session, uh, he seems a little different. I can't put my finger on it. The third session... I think maybe I'm hearing a few new sounds. The fourth session. And now he's getting excited to show me stuff. We're going for a walk, and he sees the way the sun is glistening on the snow-covered rock. And he wants me to look at it. And I'm going, really? Because I've been singing about a diamond. I thought, is he making an association there and want to share it with me? Okay, okay, okay. Now, understand, parents, I'm, he's 23. I've tried everything just like you've tried everything. And lots of times things work. But with this boy, he's what I would call a regressor. They only worked for maximum six weeks. Nothing ever worked longer than that. So I've decided to commit to 12 weeks. We spread these 40 sessions out over 12 weeks, and I keep going. And... 12 must be the magic number in this story because we're on the 12th session and I've been seeing little changes. But the thing that changed my life, that changed my son's life, that changed my other children's lives, that changed my grandchildren's lives, that changed um, my nieces and nephews' lives and changed the lives of my neighbors and then eventually all the people all over the world that I travel to see. The thing that did that happened on the 12th session. It's winter. I walk into my house. I'm taking off my coat. My back is to my son. Now, to understand the impact, I have to tell you something about him. He, if you've ever noticed sometimes disabled people with different disabilities, uh, cerebral palsy, sometimes autism, usually it's a physically impacted disability, and he's, he's multiply diagnosed in a big way. They can't open their hands. Well, he could open his hands, but he couldn't let anything touch the palms. So he would keep them in this position, of, this closed position, anytime he touched you or anything that, that he didn't like the feeling of. So he also protected his chest. So if you tried to pick him up when he was little, he would pull his body back so that his chest wouldn't touch you and his hands are back so that his hands don't touch you. I wish I could show you this because you're literally using every muscle in your body not to drop him as he's pulling away while you're holding on to him. And I used to pray, please, God, if he could just wrap his arms around me like other little children do, I promise you I would never ask for another thing. So we're in the foyer. It's the 12th session. I take off my coat. And as I'm turning around, to help my son, he says, Mom. And he wraps his arms around me, and he opens his hands, and he puts them on my back flat. I'm... 
crying. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, my God, there's nobody here. Well, I want someone to be here. What if he never does it again? No one will ever believe it. Because in his world, sometimes he would do spectacular things and they would go away. And I held my breath, and he held on to me, and I held my breath, and he held on to me, and eventually he let go. And I told everybody, and I thought that would be the end of it. I'm going to tell you that right now my son talks. He's hard to understand, but he talks. Neighbors understand him, good-looking girls that are waitresses. He rallies, and they understand him. I understand him, and my children understand him, and his nephews understand him, and his nieces understand him. But almost better. Nowadays, we call Dar the hovering hugger. Because if he sees you looking at all depressed, he thinks he is the most powerful hug in the world. Because if he hugs you and opens his hands on your back, you're just going to melt. And he's right. And that's why I do neurofeedback for everyone. Thank you for joining me. My name's Lynette Louise. I'm your story teacher host. And this is a new spin on autism. Answers. Today's answer. Try neurofeedback, guys. It's really awesome. Thanks for joining me because without you, I'd just be talking to myself. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. I can't hear.